This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Hello, good afternoon, and welcome. It's great that you're able to join us for this Howison Lecture. Let me say something about what it means that it's a Howison Lecture. Uh, George Holmes Howison was born in 1834. When he was 50, he came from the university, after an interesting checkered career, he came from the University of Washington at St. Louis to take the first endowed chair in philosophy at Berkeley. And Howison built our philosophy department. He was clearly a gregarious, sharp, influential, generous, and much-loved individual. When he died, his friends and colleagues put together a fund, the fund that is funding today's lecture, to continue his work. And the idea was to bring the most influential thinkers of the day out here to the rural wilderness of California. Um, now, for familiar public health reasons, today's session is remote. But of course, that brings opportunities as well as problems. And uh, I very much hope that wherever you're writing from, you'll, you'll just let us know where you are and um, do that uh, on the comment form, as Kathleen suggested. And we're delighted to have Robert Stalnacker here with us today. He exactly fulfills the terms that Howison was thinking of. He's one of the most distinguished philosophers alive, having made many fundamental contributions to uh, different areas of philosophy. Stalnacker received his PhD from Princeton in 1965, and over the next 50 years, he taught at Yale, Urbana-Champaign, Cornell, and MIT. His influence on generations of graduate students and faculty has been enormous. His work combines spare, lucid rigor with great philosophical illumination and depth. He's worked on philosophy of language, particularly the foundations of pragmatics and metaphysics, issues concerning modality and conditionals, and epistemology, particularly the logic of knowledge and contextualism about knowledge. His talk today, I'm excited to tell you, is called Counterfactuals, Compatibilism, and Rational Choice. So please join me in... Um, Sending vibrations of welcome to Professor Stalnacker across the ether, wherever you are. Professor Stalnacker. Right. Thank you very much, John. Uh, and thanks to the uh, Howison uh, Committee and the department uh, for uh, inviting me. It's a great honor and a pleasure to have the opportunity to uh, present uh, these, some um, develop and present some ideas. So my talk, I have a handout, which is available, normally be passed out uh, if we were all there, but uh, which is uh, available on the website of the uh, lecture. So if you haven't got it, you don't really need it, but it'll help a little bit to uh, remind yourself some of the details. So there's been a lot of um, philosophical ink spilled over the years about the question whether uh, determinism 
is compatible with uh, free will. And I'll spill a little bit more on this issue later, but my main concern uh, before getting to that um, will be with a more general and more abstract puzzle about counterfactual conditionals and determinism. A question about whether in the context of determinism, we can make sense of the idea that history might have taken a different course from the one it is actually taking. Um, roughly stated, the puzzle is this. It seems that the assumption that we live in a deterministic world implies that a complete description of the intrinsic state of the world at any given time, together with the laws of nature that are true, entails all the truths about the state of the world at any other time. And this seems to imply that if the course of events had been different from the way it actually has been in any way, however trivial, then either some law of nature would have been false or else the intrinsic state of the world at every time would have been different, at least in small ways, at every time, uh, no matter how far uh, back. Um, so for example, if I had tied my left shoe before my right this morning, as, uh, which uh, instead of the way I did, either some event that happened thousands of years ago would have happened differently, or else the laws of nature would have been violated. Or as, as we'll see later is David Lewis's colorful way of, of putting this, a miracle would have occurred. Neither seems plausible. Now the relevance of this puzzle to issues about the compatibility of determinism and free action is clear enough, but the puzzle itself is more general. Since even if counterfactuals, uh, the, the relevant counterfactual is about events that involve only inanimate objects where no issues about action are involved, the conclusion is still unsettling. It would be reasonable to believe in, that in, in some circumstances, uh, if it hadn't rained last night, the streets would not be wet this morning. But this does not uh, seem to imply, or it would be strange to say that it implies that if it hadn't rained, then some intrinsic state of the world 2000 years ago would have been different from the way it in fact was, or else some law of nature would have been violated. Um, the general puzzle was made prominent by David Lewis's discussion of the semantics for conditionals and by his application of that semantics to counterfactuals. Uh, on Lewis's general semantic account, a conditional is true in a given possible world W, if and only if the consequent of the conditional is true in all of the possible worlds that are most similar in relevant respects. Um, to uh, world W. The substantive task of a theory is to spell out the relevant respects of similarity. Now, Lewis had a number of metaphysical axes to grind in carrying out this task, uh, which we needn't necessarily uh, share. First, his goal was a reductive analysis that specified the relevant respects of similarity in terms that are intelligent or, or aimed to spell out the relevant respects of similarity in ways 
that are intelligible independently of any causal concepts. So that was one thing. Second, he was aiming in an account, or the subsidiary aim, uh, an account of respects of similarity that is temporally neutral. His thesis was that the temporal asymmetry of counterfactuals, obvious uh, intuitively, uh, um, the asymmetry, and um, the, so the temporal asymmetry of counterfactuals and derivatively of causation was the result of asymmetries in the global distribution of particular facts. So in particular, it was important for Lewis to make room for uh, backward causation and time travel, even if uh, our world does not exhibit those kinds of um, causation or events. So Lewis's formal semantics for conditionals helps to give the general puzzle a sharp formulation and his metaphysical aims and commitments help to explain his particular responses, uh, response to it. But the puzzle itself depends only on pre-theoretic intuitions about ordinary counterfactuals, intuitions that seem difficult to reconcile with determinism. Now the puzzle gets a thorough and careful discussion in a paper that was published about five years ago uh, by Kian Dorr. After giving uh, a rigorous definition of the metaphysical thesis of determinism, not exactly the way I'm gonna explain it, but close enough, Dorr uh, states then three premises about a representative, to using a representative counterfactual as, as an example, um, three premises that seem intuitively plausible. And then he derives from them a conclusion that in effect reduces counterfactuals to triviality on the assumption that determinism in his sense he defines is true. That is trivial in the sense that all counterfactuals will turn out to be true. He then examines the premises in conclusion one by one, considering which bullet to bite. Should we reject premises one, two, or three, or should we accept the triviality conclusion? And the counterfactuals really don't make sense. The choice is narrowed down to one, reject the premise that the relevant world in which counterfactual supposition is true must be worlds in which the intrinsic state of history, the past history is exactly as it was in the actual world. That's the first premise. Second premise, rejecting the premise that the laws of nature that are true in the counterfactual world must be true in the relevant counterfactual worlds. That no miracles occur in the counterfactual world. Dorr's conclusion is that we should take option one, that we should hold on, and we should hold on to the second premise, that reject option two. The argument proceeds by bolstering the second premise with examples that there are no miracles and arguing that we can get by with a weaker version of the first premise, one that assumes only that the past history of the counterfactual world must be approximately the same as they are in the actual world. Dora's argument was aimed at Lewis, who's, who chose option two and argued uh, for it, uh, and he, he wanted to, uh, that is, Lewis wanted to defend the, the exact similarity um, 
of sequences of particular events have priority over small deviations from the laws of nature. Since Lewis had described law-violating possible worlds as worlds in which a miracle occurs, Dorr titled his paper Against Counterfactual Miracles. Now, in the end, uh, I will have to address, answer Dorr's challenge on his terms. But in this talk, I'm going to take a more indirect approach, aiming to set uh, the problem up in a way that avoids choosing between the two options that he focuses on. And just to give you a spoiler alert, uh, I'm going to argue that we should reject both of the premises, or at least it'll be a consequence of what I'm going to argue, but one should reject both of the premises the door asks us to choose between. So here's my plan uh, for, for today. I'm going to first make some brief remarks about determinism, laws of nature, miracles. After this, I'm going to put two examples of simple counterfactual situations on the table and use these examples to draw some intuitive conclusions about the relationship between determinism, counterfactuals, and other causal notions. I'll then digress to make a brief uh, remark or two about the ways in which counterfactual conditionals are context-dependent or context-sensitive. And then, uh, and, and about the relevance of context dependence to the puzzle. In the last part of the talk, I'm going to turn to the more specific tension between determinism and counterfactuals about voluntary action, arguing that getting clear about the general problem helps to clarify the question whether a version of compatibilism can be defended. In particular, I'm going to argue that there is no incompatibility between determinism and the standard way in which decision situations are modeled in decision theory. I'm going to conclude by looking at an example, um, at an argument against this version, the particular version of, of decision theory um, that I will put on the table. Uh, and it's, it's, it's a, uh, an argument that involves the hypothesis uh, that determinism is true. Okay, so uh, now on, if you have a handout, we're on the section one on laws and, uh, and determinism. Let's, and this is just really a, a sequence of quick definitions, not spelled out with any precision and qualification, but just a rough idea. Uh, of what determinism says. So let's say that a dynamic theory is a theory that has the resources to define a notion of a state of some system, that is the system that's the subject matter of the theory, at a time. So you see the, it defines the state at a time, and it also has a set of laws that constrains the relationship between the states of the system at one time, any one time, and the states at other times. Okay, so that's what a dynamic, roughly what a dynamic theory is. In other words, a lot of the theories that scientists talk about are dynamic theories of this kind. Say that a theory of this kind is deterministic if and only if the propositions describing the complete state of the system at any one time, together with a set of laws, entails the state of the system 
at all other times. Or in some versions of determinism, which are only forward-looking, not backward-looking, uh, it uh, entail the state of the system at all uh, later times. Um, from that time, uh, that state. Now we might say further that a that's what a deterministic theory might roughly be defined, but we might say that a metaphysical thesis of determinism is true if and only if a deterministic theory of this kind is true and furthermore is comprehensive. Meaning by comprehensive that all the facts about the world are supervening on, determined by, by a theory of this, of this kind. Okay, so uh, of course, not all things we say about the world are stated in the language of, of a deterministic theory, but uh, they gotta be somehow uh, a different way of talking about the same, same thing. We might say then further that a fact, whether it's stated in the theory or not, um, about a particular time is intrinsic to that time if it is supervenient on the state of the system at that time. Okay, this is a rough and ready characterization of determinism. It leaves uh, uh, some questions open and it has some contentious metaphysical presuppositions, but it's enough to raise the puzzle. I'm skeptical about some of the metaphysical presuppositions. Um, particularly concerning supervenience and comprehensiveness, uh, which aren't as clear as people often take them to be, but I set these worries aside here, since I think the puzzle can be diffused without questioning um, the sort of metaphysical fundamentalism that's involved in the definition of determinism. I do, however, want to point out that while my characterization of determinism does presuppose some kind of metaphysical fundamentalism, it does not require the particular metaphysical foundation that uh, David Lewis um, defended, and which he called Humean supervenience. On Lewis's Humean picture, the fundamental properties that define the state of the world at a time are wholly independent of the laws of nature. On his account, the basic purely natural properties on which the states of the world supervene um, have in themselves no causal or dispositional or, uh, consequences. It's really the opposite of the, some other people have defended the view that what it is to be a property at all, fundamental property or not, is to be um, defined in terms of causal powers. So Lewis uh, takes the opposite line on this, that fundamental properties have no uh, causal consequences. The characterization of dynamic theories in terms of states at a time and laws and the general characterization of the thesis of metaphysical determinism does not uh, rule out the possibility that there are metaphysically necessary connections, even semantic connections, between the laws and the states, or that there are fundamental theoretical properties that are intrinsic to the things that have them at a time, but are also dispositional, um, uh, naming, meaning they have um, constitutive connections with the way they 
uh, things uh, respond or the, uh, develop as time, time goes on. Um, if the fundamental natural properties were dispositional, this would spoil Lewis's carefully developed reductive hierarchy essential to his kind of reductivist human supervenience. So the hierarchy goes, first you explain laws of nature independently of any causal notions. Second, you define counterfactuals by giving criteria of comparative similarity of worlds that depend on the laws, but don't depend on any causal notions. Uh, then you define causal dependence in terms of, or rather counterfactual dependence in terms of uh, counterfactuals, and you define causation in terms of counterfactual dependence. And each step involves a lot of, um, a lot of uh, back and forth. But anyway, um, that picture, that reductive or hierarchical, conceptually hierarch conceptual hierarchy is not uh, something um, that we are going to assume and uh, the puzzle still faces us even if we don't take that long. Now I will assume following both Lewis and also most others, including Dorr uh, in his argument, uh, who talk at all about laws of nature, that the laws are true. That is, L is a law of nature in a possible world W, if and only if L is true. In not if and only if, if only if uh, L is true in, uh, in the world W. So it's a subset of the truths um, uh, in that world. Laws are usually assumed to be contingent truths. So they are propositions that might be false, but L would not be a law of a possible world W in which it was false. So if a miracle is defined as a violation of a law of nature, then in a sense, there can be no miracles. If L is a law of nature in world W, then there are no violations of L in world W, whether W is an actual world or a counterfactual world. And Lewis is perfectly clear on this point. He recognizes as a kind of playful misdirection in the very word miracle to describe a violation of the law of nature. But the upshot is that to characterize a possible situation or possible world as one in which a miracle occurs is to give it an essentially counterfactual characterization. To ad adapt Russell's famous example, one might wish that one's yacht or longer than it is, but this need not be a wish for the impossible. Similarly, one who wishes for a miracle in the literal and perhaps misleading sense in which it's taken in this puzzle um, is to wish that the laws of nature were different in a way that did not preclude a certain event that they in fact preclude. And I'll have more to say later about the uh, idea of an essentially counterfactual characterization of a possible situation. Okay, now we're moving on to, if you have the handout, um, to the second uh, section, I'm gonna, I'm just gonna give two examples, two simple examples. These aren't puzzle cases or um, you know, wild and weird counterfactual stories like 
twin earth or swamp man or something. They're simply straightforward stories of situations in which a counterfactual question uh, naturally arises. Then I'm gonna make two points about what I take the examples to show. Okay, first example, and this is spelled out on the, they're both spelled out on the, on the handout. It's the last day of the tournament. We're on the 18th green. Anika sets up for an 18 foot putt for a birdie, which would give her a victory in the tournament. After careful consideration, taking account of the wind conditions, the slope of the green and, and all that, she's as they always do, you know, she sends the ball on its way and it looks like it an excellent chance of reaching the cup and falling in. But when it is just a few feet away, the droppings of a seagull who happened to be flying above land right on the ball, slowing and diverting it so that it stops a bit before its intended destination. I don't know what officials do in tournaments when things like this happen, um, but that's not what we're gonna talk about. Um, would the pot have sunk if it hadn't been for the bird? We can't know for sure, since even putts that look like winners when they're just a couple of feet away, sometimes stop just short of the edge of the cup or slide by. But it seems likely that it would have. And it seems certainly on the assumption of determinism that there's a fact of the matter in the actual world about whether it would have. But the spectators, in the spectators' later discussion of this question, would the putt have gone in or not, a philosopher raises the following issue. In the counterfactual situation or situations we're considering, what prevented the gull from being there and doing what it did? Did some small miracle intervene, diverting the bird's course, perhaps resulting in the dropping uh, of its dropping its load on a car in a nearby parking lot? Or should we assume that the history of the life of the gull was different, at least in minor ways, from its beginning? Or maybe because of a small difference in the distant past, that gull never existed at all. The other spectators dismiss the philosopher's question as totally irrelevant. It's irrelevant, they might have said, because whatever explains why the bird happened to do what it did, that fact has no bearing on the event leading to the ball taking exactly the path that it took up to the point where the bird's behavior resulted in an intervention in that causal chain. Okay, that's the first example. Second example, easier to follow if you <clears throat> You're a poker player, but that's not necessary. Sly Pete and Mr. Stone, these are two characters from a famous example concocted by Alan Gibbard for a different purpose. Um, uh, these two guys are playing draw poker on a Mississippi riverboat. But this is a different story from Gibbard's with no cheating involved, as his head. Pete has two pair, threes and tens and an outs with an outside ace. Mr. Stone has the five, six, seven, and eight of clubs. 
along with a useless queen of diamonds. Pete deliberates about whether to trade in his ace in the hopes of turning his two pair into a full house, but he decides to stand pat. Mr. Stone trades in his queen, useless queen, with the hope of turning his hand either into a straight, if he draws any four or nine, to complete the sequence of five cards in order of number, or a flush if he draws any club, turning it into a hand with all clubs. But since the top card on the deck is the 10 of spades, his hand remains worthless after the draw, so he folds when Pete bets. But what would have happened if Pete had traded in his ace uh, in order to try to get a full house? There's no question in this story, no matter of debate, he would have drawn the 10 that in fact went to Mr. Stone, the top card on the deck. And therefore he would have gotten his full house for uh, three tens and two threes. Stone would have gotten the next card from the top of the deck, which happened in fact to be the nine of clubs. So Mr. Stone would have gotten not just a straight or a flush, but both, a straight flush. Both players would then have bet big since they both had excellent hands, leading to a much more exciting finish with Mr. Stone's straight flush beating Pete's full house. But the philosopher says, wait a minute. We need to consider why Pete would have made a different decision in the relevant counterfactual situation. Was there a little miracle? Perhaps a tweak in his brain that altered his deliberation? Or was his past history different in perhaps minor ways from the beginning leading to a different thought process and a different decision? Once again, the others in the discussion dismiss his question as totally irrelevant. It's irrelevant, they might have said, because whatever factors might have led Pete to try for the full house, they would not have changed the fact that the top two cards in the deck were as they were. Okay, now two observations about these stories. First, the judgment that the philosopher's questions are totally irrelevant seems intuitively to be completely uh, correct. There is not a, uh, this is not a response, this observation is not a response to the argument given in stating the puzzle. We still need to answer it. And it's not a reason to dismiss the argument that Dorn uh, spells out in such detail. But it is a datum about counterfactuals on a par with the intuitions about the plausibility of the uh, uh, premises of the argument that are, uh, it, it's a, a datum that our response to the puzzle should explain. That is, we want our account of the respects of similarity to which there are counterfactual appeals to explain why the concerns of the philosopher uh, the philosopher raises in these two examples play no role at all in our judgment about uh, the counterfactuals, the, the truth or falsity of the counterfactuals that are at issue in, this, in these cases. Okay, that's the first observation. The second observation is really the main point is that the intuitive explanation for why the counterfactual questions 
have the answers they seem to have, are entirely compatible with determinism. These explanations appeal to causal chains that are independent of each other, at least up to a certain point. That is to different sequences of events with causal stories that are independent up to a point at which they intersect. The notion of causation and causal independence may play no role at all in the characterization of a dynamic theory or in a, de a definition of determinism, but causal distinctions can be made with the resources of such a theory. Determin uh, determinism may imply that the state of the world as a whole, all the facts about a certain uh, state of the world uh, at a certain time, uh, the state of the whole world at a certain time, um, um, contain um, the causes of the state of the world as a whole, uh, any of the events at any subsequent time. So the, a cautious determinist, if asked for a determining cause of a certain event, can safely say that it is to be found in a complete description of the state of the world at some time prior to the time in which the event occurred. In fact, at any time prior um, to the time in which that event occurred. One might, however, want a more informative answer that appeals to some more limited features of the prior state of the world that together with the laws suffice to determine the particular event in question. And uh, while the thesis of determinism alone makes no claim beyond the global one, any specific dynamic theory, deterministic or not, can be expected to imply some more specific claims about ways that uh, partial descriptions of the state of the world at certain um, uh, at one time constrain the state of the world at certain later times. And generalizations of this kind may contribute to characterization of notions of causal independence um, uh, and causal change. And these may play a role in specifying the respects of similarity that are relevant um, um, to the interpretation of, um, of uh, counterfactuals. In Lewis's reductive project with its hierarchy of definitions, causal and counterfactual dependence are defined in terms of counterfactuals. And any appeal to such notions in specifying the respects of similarity that are relevant to the truth conditions of counterfactuals would be circular. But we have left that project behind. And even if you, even if you go for that project, you've still got, then you've got analyses of these causal notions, but there still can be generalizations about the role of counterfactuals in, uh, in, relation, in, in relation to the, this, the relevant similarity uh, uh, notions. And so the compatibility with determinism is still um, one you have. Okay, we'll come back to, uh, um, to, uh, to the um, point, the second point, but um, I want to make a digress now to say a little bit about context dependence, because everybody agrees that counterfactuals are context dependent. Uh, and in particular, um, uh, there are different kinds of counterfactuals, famous examples of, of cases where um, an indicative conditional or a epistemic conditional has a totally different uh, meaning from a counterfactual 
conditional. So the famous uh, example of um, um, if Shakespeare hadn't written Hamlet, um, nobody would have written it. But if Shakespeare didn't write Hamlet, then somebody else did um, because Hamlet was written. Um, so epistemic conditionals have different truth conditions from counterfactuals. And then there are so-called backtracking uh, uh, conditionals, which sometimes have different um, uh, truth values from forwards. That's where you say, if so-and-so had happened, that would have been because such and such would have happened before we look back. But sometimes what is assumed is that the way in which um, counterfactuals are context dependent is wholly determined by a specification, a general specification of respects of similarity used to interpret particular conditional sentences or thoughts. And it's sometimes also assumed that there's one standard comparative similarity relation that's relevant to the interpretation of the kind of counterfactuals that give rise to the puzzle. One that contrasts with what are called backtracking conditionals and also with epistemic conditionals that are interpreted with a different comparative similarity relation. And while the comparative similarity relation is treated as a parameter determined by context, people making the point that counterfactual to context dependent say little about what a context is or what it is about the context that determines the value of this parameter relative to which counterfactuals are interpreted. Now, then I think one has to look at the question, what is a context? Uh, I've defended um, the view in other places um, that conversational context should be modeled by the common ground, a set of the set of possibilities that are compatible with what the participants in the conversation uh, presume to be common knowledge. Common ground is a certain information state. Uh, it's definable in terms of propositional attitudes of a certain kind of the members of the relevant group, though it's not a propositional attitude of any one person, but rather something definable in terms of their attitudes. Um, it's been suggested, and I'm in full agreement with this suggestion, that an important element of certain propositional attitudes is this one should understand them, both knowledge and belief, as um, uh, an element of a propositional attitude is a set of relevant alternatives determined by a set of questions at issue. So linguists have talked about this, uh, Craig, Roberts, Craig Roberts, for example, um, Jonathan Schaffer, uh, contrastivism about knowledge in other places talks about a, a partition of a, uh, a of uh, relevant alternatives. My favorite uh, paper on this um, uh, issue defending this, this line is by Seth uh, Yeltsin, um, uh, which I put in a handout, uh, references in the handout, uh, talking about a kind of grain, um, uh, grain of, um, of representation. Uh, so you take a partition of a space of possibility uh, as your uh, an element of what it is to believe. Belief is a matter of having a certain way of distinguishing between those relevant alternatives. A context set that models the common ground, if you follow this suggestion, is not just a set of possible total universes 
compatible with what is presupposed or taken to be common ground, but rather it's a partition of logical space that determines uh, those distinctions, includes a partition of logical space, determines those distinctions between possible worlds that are relevant to the issues under discussion. So this assumption implies that if we apply it to counterfactuals, that the parameter of interpretation of counterfactuals that context determines should be a comparative similarity relation uh, on the members of a partition of a set of possible worlds, the relevant alternatives. Now Saul Kripke, among others, has made the point that the formal apparatus, so if you can look for formal models, of these um, contexts and of uh, attitudes and so on, um, um, the formal apparatus of possible world semantics applies naturally to cases in which what plays the role of the possible worlds are what Kripke called mini worlds, other people too, defined by perhaps a perhaps coarse grain partition of a space of possibilities. Remember naming necessity in the introduction, Kripke talks about a little toy example of, of 36 possible states of the world uh, that are the possible ways that a pair of dice could land. And we do probability exercises um, with such a set of possible worlds. Uh, but uh, as, as Kripke says, we just ignore the other differences. But the formal apparatus applies perfectly well. On this view, the context for interpretation of a conditional determines not just a particular comparative similarity relation, but also a set of elements on which the relation is defined. The context can be, can be expected to determine some general constraints on the respects of similarity that should be held fixed in the most similar of the relevant alternatives. But the application of those constraints will depend on the particular partition of logical space that determines or is determined by the questions at issue. And the questions at issue may themselves help to determine the general constraints that are relevant. Now the hypothesis that the terms of the similarity relation are relevant alternatives modeled by partition cells of logical space has consequences for both of the theses the door asks us to choose between these discussion of the puzzle. First, that the past of the, the one of the assumptions that he you know, uh, wants to reject, um, the past of the counterfactual event must be exactly rather than merely approximately the same as it is in the actual situation. And two, that the actual laws of nature must be true in the counterfactual situation rather than just approximately true, permitting only small miracles. We might suppose without contradicting determinism that the counterfactual past is exactly the same as the actual past with respect to the questions at issue and that the causal relations between events in the counterfactual situation are, are fully compatible with all of the actual laws. But we're not, we're, if we're talking not about the relevant alternative possibilities, but about the whole universes that realize those possibilities, then either of these similarities might be only approximate. The questions at issue and the assumptions that they are part of the context help to sharpen the kind of approximations that are permitted. I mean, one of the things when you move from exact similarity to approximate similarity, you immediately just open everything up because 
you can always sort of adjust what's approximately true to suit your purposes. But if you have questions at issue that helps to pin down, approximately means exactly with respect to those questions. Okay, in light of these, now we're moving on to section four of the handout. In light of these general considerations about counterfactuals, I'm gonna look at one particular kind of context in which counterfactuals as well as epistemic conditionals play a, um, a particularly uh, a prominent role. Context of deliberation and context in which um, uh, the decisions that are made are assessed. The main questions at issue in a context of deliberation are in the case of deliberation, uh, which of the set of alternative actions to choose and what the consequences of those choices would be. And in the case of assessment, whether the choice made was the right one and more generally how that choice compares with alternatives to it. The way that decision theory, at least causal decision theory, model such contexts, the questions at issue and the notion of causal independence play an explicit role. Now, on David Lewis's way of spelling out the model, and David Lewis is here, this is not connected with his human supervenience, independent project, but Lewis's way of spelling out a model for decision situation, there are two cross-cutting partitions of a space of alternatives, one determined by a set of actions that are presumed to be available to the agent and the other specified in terms of the action partition. The second partition, which Lewis labels the dependency hypotheses is defined as um, follows. Um, for a particular agent and time. A dependency hypothesis is, and it's quoting Lewis, a maximally specific proposition about how things the agent cares about do and do not depend causally on his present actions. The idea is that the dependency hypotheses are propositions that are causally or counterfactually independent of the propositions in the action partition, but that when conjoined with one of the action propositions entails answers to all of the questions about things the agent values, positively or negatively. So the sort of the grain or partition in this case is going to be the intersections of these two cross-cutting partitions. Um, the, um, and that's a, a partition itself. So the main lesson I wanna take from the general discussion is that this kind of model of a decision situation and the notion of causal independence that it presupposes is not in conflict with determinism. If our general discussion succeeds in diffusing the general puzzle, I think it goes a long way toward diffusing the consequence argument. Though it must be acknowledged that a fully satisfactory compatibilist response to that argument will require that we say something constructive about the basis in a model of the kind that Lewis outlines, uh, decision uh, theory model, for uh, the basis for describing the first um, partition as the set of alternative actions or action propositions. That is for describing it as a set of alternatives that are in some sense available actions for the agent at the time. But getting clear about counterfactuals and their relation to determinism helps make room for a representation of a decision situation 
that clarifies and sharpens the challenge that a compatibilist needs to meet. Now, most of this is further work that I'm here just trying to set up. But in carrying out that further work, the specter of determinism will continue to raise its ugly head. I'm going to conclude today by taking a quick look at an argument against the adequacy of this kind of model of a decision problem, at least in the context where the thesis of determinism is presupposed. Okay, so now we're, we're on to the uh, last part of the handout, betting on the past. So Arif Ahmed uh, has developed the most uh, resourceful and imaginative critique of causal decision theory. And one of his arguments is that if we assume determinism, this uh, decision theory gives the wrong answer to what a rational agent should do in the following decision problem. Okay, so I'm gonna, and this is a quotation um, from him uh, stating the problem. In my pocket, says Bob, I have a slip of paper on which you've written a proposition P. You must choose between two bets. You gotta bet on P, but you can do it at two different sets of odds. Bet one is a bet of P on 10 to one for a stake of $1. Bet two is a bet on P at one to 10 for a stake of $10, these are sort of opposite odds. Before you choose whether to take bet one or bet two, I should tell you what P is. It is the proposition that the past state of the world was such that, such as to cause you now to take bet two. Amon suggests that we might make P, this proposition, more precise by identifying a particular time, say one that is many years ago, many years before you and uh, or Bob were born. You know, 1900, say, just 1000 BC, whatever. He then, or it doesn't matter, he then argues that it's obvious that you ought to take bet two. The norm, this is the normative premise, the intuitive premise about what rationality requires. And that causal decision, the second uh, uh, conclusion he draws is that causal decision theory implies you should take bet one uh, by a principle of dominance that the causal decision theorist accepts. So just to get this clearer, this is the matrix uh, that he draws for this problem. So P and not P are distant past statements, statements about the distant past. Um, so we take them to be the dependency hypotheses. Bet one, if P is true, you win $10 if you take bet one and you win $1 if you take bet two. So bet one is better if P is true. If P is false, then you lose a dollar if you take bet one and you lose $10 if you take bet two. So, um, um, so uh, it's still better to take bet one. But bet two is obviously what you should take. And I agree about the normative premise, but the mistake in Ahmed's argument is that is that one should take bet one, or rather one should take um, bet two. 
The mistake in Ahmed's argument is the assumption that because the truth or falsity of P was settled by facts about the distant past, as all facts are, uh, it is therefore entailed by the true dependency hypothesis. But the point of the causal decision theorist framework was to distinguish features of the world that are counterfactually independent of the action from those that are not. The compatibilist acknowledges, and Ahmed is a compatibilist. He just accepts the premises of the um, argument against compatibilism. Uh, the compatibilist acknowledges that the agent's choice has a causal history and that if determinism is true, then events in the distant past determine both the agent's choices and the events that would have happened, whatever choice had been made. So I think the person facing the choice, let's call her Alice, should reason like this. Assuming the thesis of determinism, which both Bob and I presuppose, to say that the past is such as to determine that I choose bet two is just a roundabout way of uh, saying that I choose bet two, or similarly for bet one. So there is really just one dependency hypothesis that says the following. If I choose bet one, I lose a dollar. And if I choose bet two, I gain a dollar. It's a no-brainer. I go for bet two. In fact, unlike Newcomb's problem, you can easily play this game at home. Assume that is, for Newcomb's problem, you need a, a super predictor. But here you don't need any, any, uh, any uh, uh, special powers. Uh, all you have to do is to believe determinism or to be prepared to presuppose it. So I might offer you a dollar to play the role of Bob. And you can ask yourself, would you accept if I did? If you accept, um, you probably won't make any money, but you can't lose any. In deciding whether to take my offer, Alice's choice is your dependency hypothesis. Now, you don't have any control over that. That's something that she'll do whatever. Um, whether whoever offers her the bet. If she takes bet one, you gain an extra dollar. And if she takes bet two, as she surely will, you break even. So, you know, if you want to test out your views about free will, well, I'll go home and play this game. Uh, now, the reason you can play this game at home without having any special insight into the distant past or into Alice's state of mind is that Alice's choice is causally relevant to whether Bob pays or collects even if it's not causally relevant to whether P is true or false. Now, uh, this is a loophole, which Ahmed recognizes in his story. And he suggests that we might block this feature of the story by supposing that the payoffs in the matrix above uh, represent not money that Bob would give her or collect from her, but rather just utility values that she attaches directly, that's quoting him, values that she attaches directly to the possible outcomes. Suppose for some reason, it doesn't matter what it is, she ranks her preferences over possible states of affairs this way. Best outcome, take bet one while P is true. Second best outcome, take bet two while P is true. Third best, take one, bet one, 
while P is false. Worst outcome, take bet two while P is false. And that you can read that off the matrix by saying what the four alternative possible outcomes uh, are as represented in that matrix. But notice that the best and the worst of these four descriptions of possible situations are essentially counterfactual specifications, like the situation you wish for when you wish that a yacht were longer than it is. A situation in which bet one is taken while the past is such as to, to determine that bet two is not taken, I'm sorry, a situation in which bet one is taken while the past is such as to determine that bet one is not taken, must be a situation in which a miracle happens and things that were determined to happen don't happen, uh, where some actual law of nature is false. But no miracle occurs in this counterfactual situation. The laws that hold in that situation are not violated. Situations defined by an essentially counterfactual specification are not options available in deliberation. Although in a retrospective assessment of a decision, some options one, may, uh, one did have may be specified in that way. The, the, uh, let's define, for example, a road not taken as an action one considers in deliberation, but in the end rejects. O'Leary is always second guessing his decisions, often regretting the choices he has made. Noting this trend, he resolves in the future to avoid regrettable choices by sometimes taking roads not taken. And he is frustrated by the fact that he never succeeds. He concludes that he is not as free as he had thought. The fatalism argument, not the consequence argument, but the fatalism argument turns on the conflation of the sense in which one cannot choose what one does not choose, and the sense in which sometimes one can, or at least could have. The consequence argument, I think, turns on a more subtle version of this fallacy, although there's obviously a lot more else going on. Now, in my homey version of Ahmed's story, the one you can play at home, Bob's knowledge of whether P, uh, P is true or false is causally downstream from Alice's action. But as Ahmed observes, it might be that Bob knew this prior to and independently of his choice. This is certainly possible. And in fact, it's not at all unrealistic. Many free decisions are predictable. And in many cases, one could say that someone before the fact knew what I was gonna do. Uh, and that wouldn't prevent me from freely doing it. Many free decisions are predictable, particularly when there are no brainers like Alice's choice. She knew what she was gonna do before the time came to commit herself. And Bob, knowing that she was clear headed, might've known that she was the kind of person who would make the rational choice. That does not imply that Bob's knowledge, and so Alice's choice, is a consequence of the true dependency hypothesis. The counterfactual, if Alice had chosen differently, Bob's uh, belief would not have been knowledge, is a true counterfactual. The contexts of deliberation and retrospective assessment 
of decisions taken involve a complex interaction of temporal, causal, normative, and epistemic considerations that give rise to a range of puzzles about choice and about an agent's capacity for choice. I think the causal decision theorist model helps to sharpen and clarify some of those puzzles, but we need to disarm the tacit assumption that determinism obliterates all causal distinctions in order to make room for a project of this kind. Thank you. Okay, well, thank you for that beautiful talk. Thank uh, you. Professor um, maybe while we're waiting for people to type in their questions, I could just ask you a little bit about what you just said. Yes, good. Um, and in particular, how you're handling backtracking conditionals. Uh-huh. So the, the idea is that um, to determine um, which possible worlds are relevant to the interpretation of a counterfactual, we, can, we should be looking at the common ground and what is happening to the common ground in the conversation. Mm-hmm. And in doing that, we can help ourselves to the notion of causation is, is, of causation. Is, yes. Yeah. 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 So, so, so we don't need the Lewis, the very austere thing where we drop causation here and try and define similarity without causation. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's an important move. Yeah. In the, in the but that's not really essential to the story because um, Lewis would not disagree that causation is going to play a role in um, in practical assess evaluation, but causation itself should be analyzed uh, in, in, in other, other terms. Uh, uh, but still, I do think that this whole notion of a, sort of a hierarchy of definitions is, um, uh, plays a role in a number of places in, in, these, uh, in, in these arguments. And I think uh, the idea that we're looking here for conceptual interconnections, uh, and we can have them uh, constitutive connections, uh, say between causal notions and, and temporal notions and so on, even if we don't have any analysis that's sort of reducing things step by step in, in some ways. Yeah. Um, I, I say about backtracking conditional, I mean, one of the things that um, the way normal way of thinking about backtracking conditionals is that um, 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 there, there's just different criteria of similarity. But I think the main thing is different questions at issue. Um, so the question, how did it, if the question is, how did it get that way? Um, how, how did a certain fact get that way? One looks back to the causes of it. And one considers um, what, uh, what would have had to been different for the thing uh, to be different. So there are different questions at issue. And in some cases, um, that's going to force you to have different priorities with respect to what's possibilities are more similar than others, but it's different possibilities that you're considering is the main thing. And, um, and as for the most part, um, a backtracking conditional doesn't assume different criteria of similarity. It just asks a different question. But in, in sort of memorable cases, uh, it's different. Like Frank Jackson has this example of um, 
you know, if USA, if he jumped off the bridge, he would have died, you know. No, he wouldn't have because he wouldn't have jumped off the bridge <laughs> uh, unless there were a safety net below. Yeah. Uh, and so that's, that's a, a, you're going to a totally different counterfactual uh, situation. But you can also ask a backtracking uh, conditional, uh, which really orders things in the same, uh, in the same way. So, um, in my slide, Pete example, he meant, how come he didn't? take a card. He should have. It would have been much better strategy given what he knew to take uh, another card, but he didn't. Uh, why didn't he? Well, that's a different question, uh, but it's a question about the same situation. When you were talking about practical deliberation, uh -huh. um, when you moved to talking about practical deliberation, um, I, I may have been naively hearing this, but um, I was thinking that um, um, Sometimes backtracking conditionals are very relevant to, act to to deliberation as to what to do. I mean, if, for example, you and I are burgling a house together, um, you know, something we've done many times, and um, uh, your task is to get inside the house and loosen a window for me to get in, uh -huh. then when I, when, when I get to the house, if I find the window loose, I think, ah, if it's loose, then my colleague must be inside the house. Uh, that can only be because my colleague is inside the house. Uh -huh. And so now I know how to proceed. So in practical deliberation, then um, we're often going to have to consider backtracking conditional. Oh, yeah. Right, yeah. 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 Um, so it's certainly not that we want some way of thinking about the interpretation of the conditionals in practical reasoning that will simply let us sideline the backtracking and say, I only want to look at the future. Right. In fact, the, the context of deliberation, these are epistemic conditionals too. I mean, uh, uh, that is, you're trying to, you haven't decided yet what you're going to do. The main question at issue involves, if I do this, then so and so. But in trying to figure out what the dependency hypotheses are, that is what the causally independent facts are, you may use uh, backtracking reasoning. That's an epistemic form of, of reasoning. That is, as you say, you, want to, you don't know whether your, your uh, partner is in the uh, house yet. Um, and so that's an open question. And the backtracking um, is a way to, to get at uh, what the answer to that question is. So quick, counterfactuals of any kind may enter into, uh, but um, the specific kind of causal um, context and the notion of causal independence is playing a role in all of these, um, in all of these uh, things. So in fact, you say, well, whether he's in the house or not, is not causally independent of whether the window is loose, but if it's, the cause goes the other way. In, in that case, from him being in there to the window. We only have a couple of minutes, but we have a question from Roger in Berkeley, who says, you refer to the laws of nature as if they are deterministic. Um, mm -hmm. uh, since we discovered that the world appears to operate under the laws of quantum mechanics, where all events proceed only probabilistic, I measurements are always approximate. There are many possible outcomes and sequences of events, etc. Does this modern physics affect your view of counterfactuals and determinism? Uh -huh. Okay, so first, the, um, 
I want to separate the question what a law of nature is um, or how it's modeled in defining a, a dynamic theory from the question whether the laws are deterministic. So you can have laws of, I mean, the, what's essential to the laws of nature is that they constrain in some way or they, they have made claims about the relationship between the state of the world at one time and the state of the world at other times. But there are non-deterministic laws of nature, which do constrain, but they, they constrain it in a non-deterministic way by saying that it's, the outcome have to be one of these and it may assign, the laws may assign a probability value uh, to those things. So that even if chance is a feature of the most basic laws of nature, as Lewis thought and other people um, think, uh, those questions about exactly how quantum mechanics should be spelled out, I'm sure, I know, I don't know much about it, but um, the, uh, so the idea of a deterministic law is just a special kind of law, but not part of the definition. Yeah. I hope that gets at what he's asking. I think so, but I'll watch out for anything else coming in on, <laughs> on this. Um, just, we'll have to stop, I think, in just a second. On your, you said you had some reservations about the thesis of metaphysical determinism, uh -huh. um, a very strong thesis. Um, I guess I wondered about pluralism. Uh, I mean, if you think about Nancy Cartwright's picture, for example, of there being no one physical theory that governs all the world, but just many overlapping um, theories. Um, would you be sympathetic to those kinds of doubts about? Oh yeah, no, and more than that, I mean, I think one can separate the question: what's what's fundamental science um, like um, from the question? Um, what um, does I mean? There is a question: does that determine all the other? I mean, the questions that mix normative and factual. Uh, in a way, and hard, that's hard to sort out. There's vagueness and so on, and and so the very claim that all the facts are supervenient on the sign, the facts stated in a fundamental one fundamental scientific theory is it can be called into question both on the grounds that maybe there isn't just one, maybe there are lots of scientific theories that overlap or or that that are govern different domains and so on. And there's no way of unifying them all together. But to add to that, the rest of our discourse, the rest of the things we talk about when we talk about the world and how much of that is uh, not reducible in a you know, piece by piece way, but it is in some way wholly determined by, uh, by that. And that's, uh, that's what I'm, I'm skeptical about. On behalf of what I'm sure is a vast scattered audience, let me thank you very much for that. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you all. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.